Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. Hey folks, Tim Brunel here. This episode is a little different than the rest. Back in May 2023, Philip made a guest appearance at an event hosted by the Minnesota chapter of the American Choral Directors Association at St. Olaf College to speak with students interested in choral directing and choral music composition. The host and interviewer is Therese Hibbard, director of the Manitou Singers and the St. Olaf Chamber Singers. The conversation covers a wide range of topics, several of which we've discussed here on Renaissance Man before, but I think you'll appreciate the narrative, especially when Philip dives into his early career with the Minnesota Orchestra and a particular sojourn to the Metropolitan Opera in the summer of 1969. If you've ever wanted to ask Philip what qualities he likes in a singer or how he'd suggest becoming a successful professional conductor, stick around. And I suspect you'll be pleasantly surprised by his response to the question, what's one thing you wish you had known before starting a career in music? Well, with that, here's Philip's interview at St. Olaf College. Welcome, Philip. And here's your first question. You have had a long and extremely distinguished career. Can you tell us about how your journey in music started? Age three. That was when, as a boy soprano, down in Austin, Minnesota, I was trotted out to sing, and it never stopped. I mean, I just started singing. The Holy City was my calling card. And so I did that, plus many other songs. And then when I was four, I started piano lessons. And then my father was a minister, And so then he was transferred up to Minneapolis when I was seven, and uh, I continued on. Then my parents had friends who were missionaries in Ecuador, and he played the marimba. So when he came and played the marimba, I said, I have to learn to play the marimba. So I did that. Then I took up organ, and uh, then I went to the University of Minnesota, and as a freshman, and I'd been accompanying everybody, you know, forever. And so I went to the university, and as a freshman, uh, they said, oh, you know, we need someone to be the graduate assistant in the opera program. And I said, okay, I could do that, you know. And they said, we realize you're a freshman, it's okay. So anyway, so I became the graduate assistant, to, and, I, and then they said, so why don't you conduct the operas? And I said, that's a good idea. So I started conducting. I did Carmen and I did whatever else, what other operas. My second year at the U, uh, because I was also a percussionist as well as keyboard guy, there was an opening in the Minnesota Orchestra. So I was 19 and they said, why don't you audition? So I did and I got in the orchestra and played for five years in Minnesota Orchestra. And I was still going to school. The problem was most of the classes that you needed uh, happened between 10 and 1, which is when the orchestra rehearsed. And so it was a little tricky. But I still remember my second year, I went to Dr. Fetler, who taught counterpoint, wonderful teacher. And I said, Dr. Fetler, I need your class in order to graduate, but I can't take it because I'm in the orchestra. It is very good experience to be in an orchestra. This is very good. It's okay. Would you just come and take the final? And I said, okay. So I came and wrote a fugue and got an A, and that was it. So you kind of, you know, I did a couple of finals like that, and, you know, it it worked out. But it was an interesting experience to sort of trying to be doing both of those So I did the orchestra for five years. The last year I was there, the Metropolitan Opera used to come on tour all the time to Northrop Auditorium. And so, you know, I'd go to the opera. So the last year I was there, this man came up to me. uh, He he called me George Schick. And George Schick had been at the Metropolitan Opera for years. 
So back in the late 30s, when George Zell went to Cleveland as conductor, he came and went to the Met. And he was the guy who was the number two. So whenever any cons any opera needed a conductor and somebody was sick, he knew everything. So he was so he calls me. Uh, is your Brunel, this is George Schick. I'm calling about your audition for the Metropolitan Opera. I said, um, excuse me, sir. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, we have a Rockefeller grant and you should be coming to work for three months in New York. Um, I said, well, I, I'm in the Minnesota Orchestra and so I don't think I can do that. So he said, you will work it out. And I said, <laughs> um, okay. So the next day, then he said, you come and audition for me tomorrow. And I went, okay, what is the audition? I want you to pretend the singers are in front of you. You are at the keyboard and you are coaching uh, or playing. And I said, playing what? Uh, we will do second act of Tristan. We will do Bizet, Carmen Trio, a quintet, and we will do Mozart something. Um, so I had to go run and find scores, you know, which I did, and came, finished the audition, and that's when he said, good, I see you in two weeks in New York. So I went to the manager, you know, I'm like 22 at the time. I go to the manager of the orchestra, and I said, I've got this great opportunity for the summer to go to New York with this Rockefeller grant and study. Uh, would you allow me to take a leave? No. And you know what? People find out in your lives that there are times when you just have to make a decision. And I thought, I can't pass up this opportunity. So I looked at the manager and just said, well, I quit. And he looked at me and said, well, if it means that much to you, I'll give you a leave. <laughs> but who knew? Courage. You know, that that would happen. You, so you kind of like have to live with the decisions you make. So I went, went off to that, came back, and I got this phone call from the guy that was the head of Minnesota Opera. And he said, we're so glad that you went to New York since we recommended you. So now are you ready to come to Minnesota Opera? Uh, sure. So I did quit the orchestra after that next year and went, and then I was for 17 years at Minnesota Opera as the conductor. So at the same time, I kept thinking about choral music and thinking, well, you know, there's, there's just so much great choral, and I'm just basically a really inquisitive guy about music. So I was very interested in that. I thought, hmm, uh, there was no organization in the Twin Cities that was really, this is pre-Minnesota Chorale, this is pre-Warland Singers, etc. And I thought, I should start something. But all that people ever heard in town were, because it was the choirs in the colleges and universities that sang with the orchestra at that time. And so I thought, you know, there's like 10 war horses, and they're great. You know, that's all you ever heard. So I decided if I'm going to start an organization, I'd like it to do music besides those 10 pieces. And uh, so I thought, okay, I'll do that. And so I was at Plymouth Church, and I asked the church if they'd help fund to get it started. And they said, sure, we'll get it going. And uh, then as that happened, I um, thought, you know, if you're going to start something, and you get people's attention, you got to start with a bang. So people who know me know that one of my mottos is, you don't know if you don't ask. Because all people can say is yes or no. There aren't any other choices. So I thought, I got to start with a bang. So I picked up the phone and called this guy named Aaron Copeland and said, hi, Mr. Copeland, would you come to Minneapolis and conduct your choral music? Young man. No one has ever asked me to conduct my choral music. I love my choral music. Tell me the date. I'll cancel what I'm doing. I'll be there. Okay, thank you. You know, right. So show, so Aaron showed up, and we became very good friends, and I brought him back later. But, you know, it just happened. 
I also knew that if you're going to do that, you have to be able to d- deliver. Yeah. You know, you can't do that and then embarrass someone like Copeland mm-hmm. coming to do it or anybody for that matter. And that's so that started it. And now I am just at the end of my 54th year of doing this. And uh, so year 55 is on its way, you know. And uh, so that's sort of. That gets us started. That got me going. That was great. Here's your next question. What qualities do you look for in the singers with whom you work? Qualities in singers. Well, of course, I'm interested to see what kind of an interesting voice they have. Uh, I'm interested to see if they know how to vocalize in a way that blends with others. I'm really interested to know what kind of a person they are. Because, boy, you just don't need someone who's got a chip on their shoulder joining your chorus. You you just don't need that. I've had a few of them over the years and have had to say, you know, I just don't think this is a good match. I think you need to, you know, go out. So I would say I I I would love if they could read, but I will take somebody and help them learn to read if the if if the voice is good. I mean, the voice has got to be something that this would be a wonderful sound that I'd like to have in my in the choir and flexible, you know, so that when you vo- vocalize them, you can kind of oh, I can see where the range of this voice would go and and it would work. And but just I think the basic personality then becomes such an important part of what I need to have. That's great. Now we're going to go to the conducting side. What are the qualities that you find are most necessary to have in order to be a successful professional conductor? I'm always amazed when I go guest conduct and somebody will say either at an opera or an orchestra or whatever, oh, you're so easy to follow. And I'm going like, isn't that what you're supposed to be able to do? I mean, be able to follow what the person's doing? Like, oh, yeah, I guess that's true. The five years that I was in the Minnesota Orchestra were so important because what I really learned were in the rehearsals, not in the concerts, because all the work gets done in the rehearsal. That's where you see. And to watch these conductors who would come and see how at the end of a week of rehearsals, this is where we are at. There were some conductors that came. At the end of a week, we had not been through all the music because they would stop at every measure and work through. And then the next, so by the, I can still remember one country, I wonder what this piece is going to sound like. You know, we didn't know because we had never been through it. And, you know, but, So you learned about how to use time, how to, when you are watching and you've got the car, okay. I mean, my personal way, everybody does it differently. For me, with choirs, I love to sing through a piece so that everybody gets an idea. Okay, now we got to go back and work on it and we we got to make sure we can make this piece work. But let's start by at least getting an idea. So let's just say it's a five-minute piece or something. And so, okay, gang, we may not, this may be a little difficult, but let's just try. Let's just see what it is. Okay. Also, let's you know, okay, I see where their struggles are and I see what works. Okay, we got that. But now we can go back and do and do it. And we may not for some time go do another straight through, but at least we know how to make this piece work and, and what happens. So as a conductor, to me, that's really important. How do you use time? As obviously, how do you inspire people is another important point. How to get people, I mean, people will say to me, you know, Phil, uh, I think you don't ever say this, but I think every piece of music that you conduct, you like. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, why would I do a piece I don't like? You know, I mean, you know, occasionally I'm thrown something that I have to do, but but basically, no, I don't. You know, I will. I like the music that I'm doing, but I. They also will say, but you always say, "Oh, this is so easy," and 
but the word I use, I don't use the word easy. I just say, oh, this is a little tricky. And they said, tricky means real hard. <laughs> and I go, oh, I guess, yeah, but I never say, I would never say to a choir, this piece is really hard. Because you're just, immediately the brain turns off. <laughs> they go, okay, I'll never be able to do that piece. It won't happen. So I don't ever use that. I use tricky. You know, this piece is a little tricky. My wife's in my church choir. She goes, we know when we hear that word. We know what tricky means. You know, right? I go, okay, but let's work through it. We'll make it happen. And uh, so I think, you know, your choice of how you approach the choir, uh, what I don't want ever is that anybody suddenly tenses up here in the throat. I don't want, you know, like, you, oh, you know, right? I don't do that. No, come on, gang. We'll, 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 let's work together. We'll make this all happen. And, you know, and keep, keep as relaxed a throat as they can, work through it. Uh, we, uh, we're doing a piece with the church choir right now uh, that's a really difficult piece. And it's, I always make sure about how many weeks. I've got a, I have a choir up at Plymouth Congregational of um, uh, 50 singers in the church choirs. And so on a normal Sunday, I'll have 40 there. There's always people absent, traveling, sick, whatever. And they all know every piece of music will get at least three weeks of rehearsal, three, three Wednesday nights. They really can read. They're wonderful, you know. But some people, I always say, you know, learning to read music is kind of like learning a language. You know, you have to start simply and, you know, and you get a choir like that. And there's some people who are better readers than other, but they, I say, they say, well, how do I learn to read music? I said, read music. That is the way you do it. You know, you, you, and you will get better. So people are just kind of amazed. They hear the chronicle, boy, they really can do this. They're not professional singers, you know, but they're just, they've learned there over the years. And um, so all of those kinds of things go into the whole positive attitude about how you approach it. At the same time, you know, there'll be an occasion I'll go, okay, gang, this is not working. Now, can we all stay, get, pay attention here? Where are we at? And then they trust me, and that's the other thing. Great. Wow. Such good ideas for us to uh, emulate, huh? Um, what are the changes that you've seen over the course of your career in the world of choral singing and choral conducting? Well, for sure, the range of music that choirs are singing is so much broader than it used to be. I mean, in terms of other countries, you know, I mean, it was, that's why, as I say, when I started Vocal Essence and there was just, you know, pretty much these 10 war horses, uh, people are now much more interested in other things. And because they're interested in other countries and other languages, there's, they've also become much more interested in how to make different vocal sounds. That's different because it was sort of like there was one sound for everything. That's just not true anymore. So that if you're singing a piece from South Africa, you know, you're going to do that in a different way than you might sing a piece that you might sing from Mexico, for instance. And uh, so... I just find the choir, um, that the, the, the whole picture of what people can do in music is now so much broader than it ever was. And uh, it, you know, but you can't do everything. And that's the other point. You'd have to decide, okay, I can only do so much. Uh, I'd love to say I'm going to do 48 countries, forget it. How about five, you know, and do that, do and do it well. That's the other thing. Make sure that you, I mean, one of the good things about vocal essence is the reputation is, well, you know, we won't know all the music that Brunel is doing, but we know it'll be done well. And that's the key. Because you want an audience to come, and they won't come if they don't think it's going to sound good. What about choral conducting? What has changed? Do you feel those things have changed? Just to far What's changed in choral conducting? I. Uh, 
I would say there is a lot more uh, interest in seeking ideas and thoughts from the choir. Mm -hmm. That never used to be, no, no, no. I have all the answers. Uh, there you go. Not that way anymore. It's much more, you know, I've got this piece of music we're working on. I'm not quite sure what the poet was thinking about here. What do you think? Well, people have ideas and they come through it. And we kind of go, you know, what it is. I don't need them to, if they want to suggest repertoire, that's fine. I don't necessarily need, but I'm just interested in how they perceive the music and what, what it is that we're doing. I would also say that uh, the choral conducting now has much more ability of drawing a sound mm -hmm. from a choir. It used to be very, I'd say, more symphonic. Mm -hmm. You know, that way. And it isn't that way. It's, it's really changed a lot. Uh, but again, it comes back to, it doesn't matter to me, it's just clarity. Can people follow what you're doing? I can remember we brought uh, a conductor. No, he was on. He was coming to town, a composer named Malcolm Williamson, and he came to Minneapolis to do a thing about British choral music. And I said, okay, well, we'll do that. So he came to Minneapolis, and a bunch of people came, and he was supposed to, I was told he would lead the session. And so he came in front of the choir, and he got a piece of, oh, okay, let's take this piece here. And he went, Philip, they don't sing. I said, well, yeah, you've got to help. I mean, you can't just go, oh, and have and sing. It doesn't work that way. Oh, I see. You know, he, on the other hand, had great repertoire ideas, which were really good. He was the first person I ever knew who had uh, known Herbert Howells and had done Take Him Birds for Cherishing. So when I was in London and I went to Malcolm and he said, well, who are the, are there any people you'd like to meet while you're here? This is in the 70s. And I said, well, I'd like to meet Herbert Howells. And he said, and I said, I'd like to meet Adrian Bull, the conductor. Oh, so he arranged for an afternoon of each for me. And I could still remember going to Herbert Howells, room at the conservatory, dressed, and he was always with the vest, a little tie, very proper. And I walk in his office, and I'm like, I look, look office of Herbert Howells. Mm. And what did you say? And I looked around and there was a picture of Perry on the wall and another one of Stanford up there. And I said, oh, uh, Perry and Stanford. And he looked at me and said, yes, he said, I studied with both of them. They're both dead. I'm still alive. <laughs> and I went, okay. And we kind of went out from there. Right. You know, right. You know, this is not one of the questions, I'm sure, but let me just tell you, one of the things that I learned, and believe me, I hope you all do this. I really do. Back when I was in the orchestra, they did the War Requiem of Britain. I was not married at that time, and but Carolyn was at the concert, and she said to me after she was so moved, I would have loved to send a note to Benjamin Britten. Uh, where do I write? And I said, you know, I don't know, except he lives in this little town called Alborough, and it's in Suffolk, and I and it's he's in a house called the Red House. I think if you just put Benjamin Britten, Red House, Alborough, England, it'll get to her. Oh, okay. So she did. It was in the spring, and what we thought was the item until December, and Christmas cards are coming, and she, this envelope came to Miss Carolyn Olson. And she opened it. It was a handwritten thank you from Benjamin Britten. Just saying, thank you, Miss Olson, for taking time to write to me about my music. What that did for me is to say, from now on, I will always, and I have, I'm very faithful about this, I will always write to any composer whose music I perform. And I would often send a program. It could be either a concert piece or an anthem on a Sunday morning. It didn't matter. I would write to them. And I didn't write expecting answers. Like, I just did it. But forget it. Are you kidding? Composers are so thrilled to hear from somebody 
who did their music, especially choral music, because uh, if an opera composer, uh, if you write to them, they know which opera company did their music because the, the opera had to pay rent for the orchestra parts, so they know that. Choral music, it got purchased until recently. It got purchased in a music store. So all the composer knows is that at the end of the year, 200 copies of X anthem were bought. But he, but the composer, he or she doesn't know by whom that ever happened. And so uh, they, you know, so I started doing this. And one of them was a wonderful composer, Ian Callum, who Manitou did a piece of Ian's. Anyway, I wrote to Ian to say, we did your piece of Prayer to Jesus at Church of the... A few weeks later, I got a letter back from England, and it just said, thank you so much for doing this. I hope you don't mind, but I've composed this anthem as a thank you to you. Okay, thank you, you know. And it's not the only composer that's done that to me. And you just kind of like, wow, you know. But you get all these wonderful letters, which I've kept. And, you you know, it is such a... And then, share it with the choir. And they go, yeah. oh, my word, you know this. So where that leads today is, okay, so Saturday was the coronation of the king. And I saw the list of the composers who were writing, who were commissioned. And four of them are good friends of mine. So, of course, I sent an email, said, hey, I see you're writing for the king. And all four of them wrote back. And one of them, Roderick Williams. Mm -hmm. And Roddy, as we call him now, anyway, I know. But Roddy, who was here about six weeks ago with Schubert Club and did a concert uh, of Bach. And... So I wrote, he wrote me back and I said, uh, I look forward to hearing your piece. And he said, he wrote me back and said, Philip, it is a rather short piece. Please don't go out to get a coffee. You might miss it. <laughs> right. And uh, I didn't go out. But I listened to the whole coronation last night just to hear what these people had all done. And another one was my friend Judith Weir, who is the now the title is Master of the Queen's and now the king's music. And uh, so, and we've done a number of pieces of Judith, and she wrote and said, actually, this time I'm not doing a choral piece. They've asked me to do an orchestral overture. So it was in the pre-concert music that went on that the Monterey Choir sang and all of that. So I just encourage you, if you say, I don't know how to reach the composer, you know what? Just write to the publisher and say, please forward. You know, it'll get to them. And then when you suddenly open your mail someday and are shocked that you heard from the composer, you know, it's wonderful. And they stay in touch. I've, I, they're so grateful. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to do that. So, so, you know, now it's hundreds and hundreds of composers that I'm coming to know because of that. And, uh, yeah, it's been definitely worth it. I remember, so I wanted one year to get, um, singer named Peter Piers. Peter Piers was the partner of Benjamin Britten. And wonderful, and Britten wrote all, anything for tenor, he wrote for him. And so I thought, well, I should bring Peter Piers to Minneapolis. He's never been here. So I wrote to him, hi. Uh, I didn't say hi, I said hello. Uh, <laughs> Dear Mr. Piers, I hope you will consider coming to Minneapolis. And uh, and singing music, and I said, what I would like you to do is to sing the five canticles that Britain wrote for you. And he wrote me back, and he, he always said, "My boy," he said, "My boy, I will come. I can't sing all five. I'll sing. I'm now older. I'll sing three, and I'll coach the other two. So we did all five. And in fact, a former voice teacher here, Janice Hardy, who was my soloist at the time of the church, uh, did the Abraham and Isaac with him. And she said, I walked to the room, and there is P Peter Pierce. And I'm like, and he said, oh, hello. And she said, hi, 
<laughs> she said, I was so in awe. And she said, and if you know that piece, it starts with the two of them singing the word Abraham together. And she kind of, she had her music, and she looked at him, and he said, no, no, no. Just face ahead. Our arms will touch. We will breathe together, and we will sing Abraham. Yeah, come on. And that's exactly how it was, you know. So it's lovely experiences like that. Letty. I think this question you might have just answered. Uh, what's one thing that you wish you had known before going into a career in music? How fun it is. That would be it. I just thought it was great. It was, it was great fun. It still is. I mean, you know, it's not finished. So I hope, no, it's, it's, it's exciting. And new opportunities come all the time. And you go, oh, composers come up to you after, you know, you've been doing this for a while. And they go, oh, would you ever do my music? Oh, yeah, I should. Uh, you know, that was how I met Calvin Hampton. And Calvin, wonderful. But, you know, it's just kind of like, do you want to do a piece of mine? Oh, sure. Let's do it. You know? So I said, I just want a little piece. Well, and of course, he wrote a five movement piece. And I went, uh, Calvin, I said, I just wanted a little piece for Palm Sunday. Well, anyways, this five minute, five movement piece came. So I ended up, okay, I can do two parts of it for one anthem, one for the travel, one for the, I mean, I, know, I didn't, but you know, it was not quite what I expected to get. You know, and then afterward, he said, um, I said, what do I owe you for this? Oh, no, Maria, you don't pay me. I said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I pay you something. I don't remember what I paid him, but no. He was just a sweet, wonderful man. Wow. Can you talk about one time that things didn't go the way that you wish they had and what you learned from that experience? Oh, sure. Um so I do this program every year called Welcome Christmas, and I've been doing it for a long time. And again, I started it just because I said, you know, there's a lot of great music for Christmas and nobody ever hears it. So why don't we go in that direction? And one year I had, this would have to have been, you know, I might have been maybe at this time in my 30s. I had the ridiculous idea, and believe me, it was ridiculous, that you know, people don't always want to hear Christmas music during December. And so I chose a work to do at Orchestra Hall that had nothing to do with Christmas. And it's a piece by Honegger called Joan of Arc at the Stake. And so people all came. Oh, well, Philip, I wonder what this is. And they all came and they're kind of like, you know, and it's the whole story of Joan and all that happened with her and the burning up and all that. And it finished, and one person in the audience said to her husband, no, he said to her, I don't get why he did this piece for Christmas. And she said, I don't either unless he was thinking about burning the Yule hog. And I went, anyway, never again. From then on, Christmas at Christmas, you got it, always. Yeah, yeah, you don't do. So, yes, you learn, you know, you keep thinking, oh, no, people don't want it. Kitty. It's an app program. Yeah. You know, but, you, but they don't necessarily want the same old pieces, you know. So they, they want to hear something new, but a little mixture, whatever you can break off. Which is a great follow-up. This next question. What's the biggest piece of advice you would offer the future conductors and educators in the room today? I would say curiosity. Be curious. Explore. Find music that you don't know. Go the, you know, definitely. Be, yeah, curiosity. I mean, I just, you know, so when I was six, my mom took me in Austin to hear Handel's Messiah. And I was like, I've never heard orchestra and chorus and all that and it was just so thrilling and after it was over i said to my mom you know what i'd really like for christmas is a score of messiah i wasn't aware that six-year-olds weren't asking for them but anything <laughs> she gave me a copy and you know i went oh and then i discovered um and of course i played through it and carried it and then but then i discovered that handel had written other pieces that that wasn't the only one 
So because of it, at Vocal Essence, I've never done Messiah. However, I've done six other Handel oratorios that everybody was like, really? Did he write more than just Messiah? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, great. I mean, if you want a piece with the best choruses of any Handel, you want to do Solomon. Solomon is just amazing. It's wonderful. There's others, too. Uh, but we did Esther. I uh, did Saul. Oh, when you do Saul, and there's the part about the writing on the wall, meaning that, you know, and how Handel pictured that with the violin going, Oh, yeah. No, this there's a lot. There's a lot of cool music out there, you know. But I, another lesson I learned is, I know this is a shock. You could do a handle three-hour oratorio, and you know what? You could make cuts. You don't have to do a three-hour because I used to the first years. Then people were like, oh, it's kind of long. Maybe I'll leave it in your mission, you know? Right? Then I realized. Handel made cuts in his own music. He didn't always do the entire oratorio. So then I started cutting it down and would do them, but, you know, to a length where there was one intermission, not two. Yes, right. So anyway, uh, I would just tell you, curiosity is the most wonderful thing because you'll just, you know, at, and I guess with that, I'd say my the other word, of course, that I always, that I've already said today is, you know, you don't know if you don't ask. Because, you know, you're, the chances of getting, a, depending on the question, I, would, I never asked Queen Elizabeth to come and sing because I knew the answer was no, you know, right? So you don't, but if you think, I wonder if there's a chance, the answer is going to probably be yes, you can do it. I remember I needed a narrator for a concert one time. And I thought, okay, there. James Earl Jones, he'd be the one to ask. And I realized, Howard, this very, very famous guy, you all know who James Earl Jones is? Okay. Well, anyway, uh, I thought, but he's, you know, how am I going to even find him? (laughs) So I found someone who knew him, and I said, which is really the other part of the picture, and I wrote, and I said, would you do me a favor? Would you write to James Earl and just say, you're going to hear from this guy named Philip Brunel, and he's on the level. This is okay. So I wrote to him, and, and in fact, then I went out and saw him in California, and I said, what I want to do, uh, the reason I want to see you is I would like to commission a piece for narrator and orchestra for you. For me? I said, yeah. No one's ever done that. Of course I may do it. Thank you. You know, so James Earl came to Minneapolis, you know. Um, I rem- but I do remember saying to him, but I have to tell you, I'm not sure I can afford you because at that time, his fee for a solo, I talked to his agent, his fee for a total, 50000 I thought, there's no way I can afford that. So, no. So, I called the agent after this all happened and they just said, um, you're not paying that fee. James Earl wants to do this. Thank you. So it was much less than that. So, you know, but again, you know, I mean, even though he said, yes, if I couldn't have afforded it, I could have then said, well, I'm so sorry, but this won't work and move on, you know, but you have to ask, you know, unless you ask somebody, you won't know if they're even going to listen to, you know, or go with you. So, what is the one question that I haven't asked that I should have? Well, there's several, but the one that we want asked one is if you decide to start a choral group like I did, you want to ask, how do you fundraise? How do you raise money to start something brand new? You know, I had no clue how to do that. I believed in what I wanted to do. So that's that was a that's a really important thing, obviously. I believed in what it, but how do you raise the money? So what I did is got a hold of a couple of people who were businessmen and women in the, in, the, in the area and said, I want to start this. What do I do? And they were wonderful. Here's this young guy. I was, you know, 23. I want to start this thing. And they said, here's how you do it. And, and also, we'll help you, you know, but you just aren't. 
And the thing that I'm most proud of, of all about the administration of vocal essence is, I mean, I started the staff of vocal essence at the beginning was me. That was it. And then a few years later, this woman said to me, I'll just come and help you. And I went, oh, okay, just with all kinds of admin stuff. So she helped. After a few more years, I could afford to pay her, and it kind of grew. But the most important thing I can tell you, in 54 years, we are the only arts music group in the Twin Cities that's never had a deficit. We have paid our bills. And you know what that does? You want to go after people and ask them to give you money? They love the fact their money will be used well. That it's not like, oh, yeah, well, you kind of screwed it up and it's not working. No. So it really, the, the word gets out. You know, yes, the word is out that you're an excellent sounding group. Yes, the word gets out that you are going to adventurous, interesting repertoire and you're going to encourage people to come. But you're also going to make sure you balance your budget. So that would be the question. That's great. We are, we are at where you can ask a question. If you have a question for Philip, that would be, this is a great time to ask because we have a little time. Anything? And I would just say, if you don't have a question now and you have one later, you just send it. I'm really good with email. Yes, he is. Yes. I am really good. Now, you also have to know, well, my wife knows this very well. She says, you know, Philip, you know, you are a wonderful person, but you are weird. Now that, <laughs> what? She goes, oh, yes, I do not own a cell phone. So if you call, I will never answer because I don't have a number to call that you could call. But if you want to reach me, you just email me. It's just Philip, 1L, please, 1L, at vocallessons.org. And if I get a, an email, I may respond to you right away and say, I can't deal with this right now, but you'll hear from me, you know. So it may not be it. But that's it. Or, or, send, or send me a letter. Or say, you know, do you know this composer? Or what about this piece or something? I'm glad to, you know, get back to you. I'm, I'll encourage any young person that I possibly can, you know. And you just send it to Vocal Essence. Just the website, it's all right there, you know. What, I'll send it around to yeah. them, Of course. And I'm just saying, you know, so something may come to your mind and you may think about it. Hmm, what do I like to do? You know, what can I do? So just keep that in mind for the future. But if there's any question now, let me know. Is there a piece or composer that you maybe don't know about you should? Many. <laughs> Something recent, maybe? Before I answer that, I'll just tell you, you know, when the pandemic started, I thought, what can I do to keep people's spirits up? And I thought, okay. So I knew that I had so many composers that I had uh, been involved with and that I performed. So I decided that I would start every day doing a 10-minute little video, and which I ended up calling Musical Moments, and which I would do one composer a day, and it was going to always be a composer that I had either performed at Vocal Lessons or Plymouth Church or both. And so, and I thought, people are at home, and I wasn't really thinking at first that this was going to be just for music majors. This was just anybody. And so it was 10 minutes. So I sit at the piano and talk about a composer. So the first day I did Dominic Argento, my old teacher, wonderful friend. So I did. And so it would be like me saying, oh, here's a choral piece of his. Let me just play you a little bit of this because this is really beautiful. And you ought to look this up, et cetera. And then and I went through it. So I did that. Uh, Monday through Friday, my older son, Tim, who is a great video guy, he came and we would do a week's worth at one time and boom, here we go and take care of it. Um, and I did the, we stopped doing them when we read Composer 300 because mm-hmm. I just, Tim said, Dad, I've got other stuff to do, you know, right. But then I thought, what do I do with all these? So now what we've done, you can go on the Vocal Lessons website or the ACDA National website. They're all there. And what I got a friend to do was to make them all 
so that they are by category. Could be like you could look at under men or women, or you could look under African American or British or Scandinavian or whatever kind of topic you wanted, and they'd all be there. And you know, and they're all composers that I'm enthused about, obviously, or I wouldn't have done them at all. So there's all this music that's out there. So you what piece? Okay, I can be two. Maybe you know them. Do you know um a piece by Stephen Paul is called The Day is Done. It's a poem by Longfellow. It's absolutely a bit, the day is done and the darkness falls, etc. It's that kind of thing. If you read the poem, he changed the ending a little bit for good reason, because the ending suddenly, we're talking Longfellow, 1850. He changed the ending because it talked about the Arabs, and it didn't need that. So he just made a little difference and it way to work. So that's what Another one is a piece by my friend, now deceased, Egil Hovland, the Norwegian composer. And Egil, who was this six-foot-two guy, he wrote a piece. I have to be careful with the title because there's two pieces. There's one that you have sung at St. Olaf, which is a beautiful piece called Stay With Us. But look at the other one called Be With Us. Be with, I think it's a better piece, but that's me, you know. Boy, now stay with us, and it goes. What you need to do, if you decide to do that, you write to me because what the piece should have is a full, it's part of an author. There's a four measure orchestral introduction that sets it up. But, you know, it's not in the vocal score. So if you're going to do it, let me know. The other piece, though, the one called Be With Us, if you want to please your alto section, then you want to do this piece. A little bit of organ comes in, but it's you. During all of that, the soprano tenor bass is going. Whether we do that again? Oh, it's 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 a really beautiful piece, and the organ part it is a kind of a chant in the middle that comes in. If you do it, it's it's uh, published by Walton. So, by the way, when I did those 300, one of the things when we made it happen, I made sure when ACDA got the thing, it also listed every composer, the if it's published, where to find it, if the composer is living, what's their email address, if they would, I asked them all, they would let me have it, you know, but I didn't have one no. They all were so pleased that people cared about their music. Those would be two pieces out of all. My word, huge <laughs> list. The only problem with that, be with us, when you do it, there's a mistake, and I tried to get Walton to fix it. They said the passage that it's from, they put John, it's not, it's Jonah. You know, right, slight difference, Old Testament, New Testament. I, I'm curious, uh, the whole topic of your um, James Earl Jones uh, uh, story, um, how closely did you work with him in selecting the texts that he would and was was there already a relationship with the composer? So I'm just curious to know a little bit about how this all evolved. So what happened was, I said, I would like to commission you. Uh, we need to think about a text. And he said, I know the text that I want. I want to do a children's story. But he didn't necessarily know exactly which one of those he would do. And as far as the composer, there is, he's still alive. There's a guy, African-American guy in California named Michael Abels. And Michael Abels, who is amazing, he's now gone into kind of a lot of, you'll, you'll find his name, believe me, A-B-E-L-S. Uh, but he, I called him and I said, Michael, I have a project for you. And I said, I want you to write an orchestral score 
for a, with narrator and et cetera. And I said, and the narrator is going to be James Earl Jones. And it was like, <laughs> oh my word. Uh, so yeah, it just kind of worked. The same thing when you're doing a commission of a composer and you have to kind of like, uh, you know, I'd like to commission you. What I have done most of the time is to say, here's my budget. As opposed to saying, uh, what are you going to charge me? They're like, well, let's see, is 10000 more? I didn't know, right? And, you know, I'll just say, I, can, I, I don't have a lot of money. I can give you, depending, 500 I can give you 5000 It depends on who they are and how famous they are, et cetera. You know, and they can, they can either say yes or no. It's just kind of exciting. I just think, as I said earlier, you know, what what's the thing about being in this business? It's just exciting. It's wonderful. And there's just always new things that happen. We're just doing, um, for our welcome Christmas, I wanted to have Eric Essensbold. I said, okay, I, what I want from you, I want a piece based on three Latvian Christmas songs. So he said, look, there are hundreds. I said, I just need three. You know, and he said, okay. And I said, he said, secular or sacred? I said, a mix, you know, whatever. But I need that. And I did it because I thought he's never done anything like that. And it would be a different sound from Eschen's Bald. And I know it'll be a big hit. I haven't got the music yet, but it's supposed to come in a, in August, but it will. You know, so hey. All he had to say was yes or no, I'd do it. And he said, yes, of course. You know, you know. And then I talked to a publisher and we figured out what it was going to cost and all that stuff. We want to thank you so much yeah. for oh, sharing yeah. this time with us. And there you have it. Many thanks to Therese Hibbard, the American Choral Directors Association, and St. Olaf College for this discussion with Philip Brunel. Now, this episode is being released in early June 2023, and I wanted to let you know we've got something very special coming up next, and I hope we're able to get it on air as close to July 1 as possible, because July 1st, 2023 marks Philip Brunel's 80th birthday. We'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening to Renaissance Man, Philip Brunel and Music. Until next time.